Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14. Paul writes, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Paul invites us to take a walk on the light side. So what happens when we let the light of God's love shine? According to Paul in the text, we experience a change in our character in verse 8. We experience a change in our conduct in verse 9. And we experience a change in the choices that we make in verse 10. Light both reveals and then repudiates in verses 11 through 13. In what sense? In the sense that we're invited to walk in the light. And so when we're walking in the light, the light itself repudiates those dark and hidden corners of our life and forces them to flee. So the light exposes those things that are done in the dark in verse 12. The light reveals and converts everything in its path in verse 13. Light awakens those who have fallen asleep. Earlier this week, I, was, I flew into Tucson, Arizona, and it was in the evening. And when I got to the hotel, the hotel said, um, we hate to inform you, but we're not going to have any power in our hotel whatsoever from 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the morning. That means no light, no air conditioning, no power at all. And then they handed me a flashlight. You know, I haven't had that happen to me since I visited India in a third world country. And sure enough, the lights were gone. The power was gone. The air conditioning was gone. And I settled into total darkness and woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning and turned my little flashlight on. Paul is going to invite us to turn on the light. The light changes our character. Look at verse 8 again. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Now, read the passage again. The fact we were once in darkness shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who's been studying with us or who have read the book of Ephesians. Paul has already told us that we were dead in trespasses and sins in chapter 2 verse 1. That we used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience in chapter 2 verse 2. One of the things that you should get from this text when it says, for you were once darkness, even though this is hard for some of you to believe, people apart from Christ are lost. Really. For real. They're in darkness, the people that you know and the people that you love and the people that you grew up with and even you, apart from Christ, you were living in the dark. And so there are people who, who, who entertain the notion that people in the dark are in fact in the light and nothing could be further from the truth. People apart from Christ are not only in darkness. Look what the text says. For you were once darkness. 
It doesn't just simply say you were in the dark or you were naive or you were disconnected. Look what it says. You were once darkness. And this sounds dreadful. What in the world does he mean? Whatever else it means, it has to mean that people apart from Christ are darkness. That means they're on their own. They're all alone. They don't have God in their life. They don't have Jesus in their life. They don't have grace in their life. They don't know God, even though they'll tell you that they know God. You know these people. And all of you, without exception, used to be these people. Well, I know God. I, I love God. I'm a good person. But Paul says you were once darkness. The unbeliever, the make-believer might try to convince you that they're in the light, but they're not in the light. And so the Bible describes the human condition apart from Christ in these vivid terms. It uses terms like darkness. It uses terms like dead. It uses terms like void of the truth. God described Israel as stubborn and rebellious in Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 23. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist in his book The God Delusion writes, and I'm quoting him, I am attacking God, all gods, anything, everything supernatural. He makes no bones about it. In his world, there is no God, gods, there's there's no such thing as supernatural, but he presents his reader with an unconvincing argument because he offers no rational explanation of why there's something rather than nothing. He offers no rational explanation for why you exist. He offers no rational explanation of the condition of your heart. How in the world can you explain the complexity of creation and the reality of consciousness if you ask any of your friends who claim to be atheists, just simply ask them the question, why is there something rather than nothing? The honest atheist has to say, I don't know. How do you explain consciousness? The honest atheist has to say, I don't know. We live in a dark age where voices scream that light is darkness. And it confirms what the Bible says, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Even Plato said, we can forgive a child who's afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light, unquote. You know people. You know them. You talk to them and they say, don't talk to me about God and don't talk to me about Jesus. I don't want you to talk to me about God and I don't want you to talk to me. Can't you just shut up about the Bible? What is it about the Bible and what is it about God and what is it about Christ and what is it about hope that you find so annoying the unbeliever is surrounded by darkness and is in fact in the dark. The unbeliever is blind to the truth and blind to God's plan and blind to the purpose of God in their life. The unbeliever will argue that they have as much right to the truth as you do. They have as much right to God and they have as much right to hope and they have as much right to forgiveness. But they want all of those things without God and without Christ and without the gospel. You see, this is why we preach the gospel. This is why we teach about God. This is why we tell people about Jesus. The truth is in Christ, and apart from Christ, human beings are surrounded by a thick cloud of deceit. In Paul's testimony, after being struck blind on the road to Damascus and hearing the voice of Jesus from heaven, you'll remember Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? 
And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you persecute. He was instructed by Jesus to present himself in Damascus to a man named Ananias who would instruct Paul, quote, this is from Acts. Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 9.17. Ananias was, was in part to, to instruct Saul to serve as a witness to Saul's conversion. In other words, why did Jesus send Saul to Ananias? It's so that he could be a witness of the transformation of heart that was going to take place in Saul's life. He was going to experience a radical conversion. It says in Acts 9.18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once. And he was baptized. I think speaking about that event in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3, Paul writes, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded. And they do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, should shine on them. The Bible teaches that people apart from Christ and apart from the gospel, they are living in this very dark place. They're blinded in part by Satan. And it's okay for you to pray, Lord... Remove the scales from their eyes. Help them to, we say it almost like a cliche, help them to see the light. The believer, according to Paul, look what it says. The believer is in the light for you were once darkness. But look what it says. But now you are light. And what's interesting about that statement, it isn't just you are in the light because you've received Christ as your savior or because you're born again or because the darkness has now left you. He says that just like he says you used to be not just in the darkness, but dark. Now you are light. According to the Bible, we're the children of the light and we're the children of the day. The believer is light in the Lord. And so here's what Paul is inviting the Ephesians to believe. We are able to walk as children of light. Paul is trying to convince the Ephesians that they're really saved, that they've left the kingdom of darkness and they've entered the kingdom of light. And guess what? That's what I'm trying to do to you, is to convince you that what the Bible says about you is true. This is what you used to be. This is what you now are. The true nature of the unbeliever is darkness and the true nature of the believer is light in the Lord. We know that Jesus is the source of the light and in a very real sense is the light. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, you'll remember that, that John writes, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the, and remember the Lord Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life in John chapter 8, verse 12. But what you may not know in John chapter 8, verse 12, is the context of Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. Jesus shows us the truth about life, about God, about creation, about fall, about the death, about what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be reconciled to God. Jesus doesn't simply show us the light. He doesn't just simply reveal the light. He makes us light. We leave darkness. He changes our nature from darkness to light. And so for the person who entertains the notion, am I saved? Really saved? Why is it that I still struggle with sin? 
Why do I still find myself in dark situations? Why do I have this struggle? Well, guess what? Christians struggle. But Christians don't remain in the dark. They leave the dark. They understand that something is different in their life. There seems to be some evidence that the events in John chapter 8, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he that follows me shall not walk in darkness. It was taking place during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And you may not understand about the Feast of the Tabernacles, but there was this spectacular fire display. It was called the illumination of the temple. If you walked into our church just now, you'll see trees lit up and and there's lights everywhere in the temple, in the ancient world. Um, In the temple treasury, there were four massive golden candelabras as tall as the highest wall in the temple. And each bowl in this massive candelabra contained 65 liters of oil and it burned so brightly that the uh, that the temple appeared like it was day in the middle of the night have you ever been driving along a highway and there's these bright bright lights as people are working on the road in order to make it safe for people imagine this spectacularly bright light that makes the darkness seem like it's day and in when the menorah or the candelabra would be burning Levite priests untold numbers of Levite priests would play harps and lyres and cymbals and trumpets and instruments of music and they would they would dance and they would sing in this light and then the oil would burn down and the candelabra would extinguish And then it would put the temple into darkness. I think that's when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. This is the point. Some scholars suggest that, again... When he says, I'm the light of the world, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus is in effect saying, think about what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the presence of God in the temple, the presence of light. Do you remember when the children of Israel were taken out of Egypt? They were led by this pillar of light at night and a cloud during the day in order to guide them and lead them. And Jesus is in effect saying, that's who I am. Paul is telling the Ephesians, if you walk with Jesus, if you are in Jesus, you are in the light and you are light the christian becomes light in verse 8 we walk in that light the fruit of the walk means that our behavior has to conform to the location where we are where are we we are in the light so there are deeds done in the dark and there are deeds done in the light And so that's what Paul is saying. It means our behavior has to change. We're not to sleep in verse 14. We walk in wisdom and the will of God in verses 15 and 16. The whole idea, remember the walk being a metaphor for now we live differently. And the reason why we live differently isn't because we go to church and it isn't because we're mad at ourselves, and it isn't because we're frustrated with our sin. And we, we say, you know what? I'm so sick and tired of being weak or weird or wicked. I so want to be different. And Paul says, you are different. You've been changed. Jesus has changed you. And because Jesus has changed you, we can walk differently in our conduct. The person who's saved from sin has to come to that place where they say, you know what, I'm through with it. I'm through with sin. 
We walk as children of the light means we, we walk in such a way that we want to walk in such a way that we honor God, that we glorify God, that we don't embarrass God. We live before the eyes of God, not hiding anything, Wiersbe says. Wiersbe says we're, we're living in such a way where we go, you know what? God knows every thought that I'm thinking. He knows every spot and blemish inside of my heart. It doesn't make sense to try and hide from him. So I'm going to change. I'm going to make it, I'm going to walk differently. So think about the train of thought now. Our character is changed. And because our character is changed, our conduct must, must change. We can hide our hearts from each other, and we can hide our thoughts from each other, but we can't really do that with God. We can forget or pretend, but it's not true. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The writer of Hebrews goes, he's there, he's watching. So we surrender ourselves to God's inspection. That's the idea. We surrender ourselves to God's inspection. When I went through the airport, I had to surrender myself to the inspector. I read a sign, no kidding. The sign said, this inspection is for your safety. And I thought, okay. Pause for a moment. When I'm going through the inspection line, do you think I'm afraid or unafraid? Why would I be unafraid? Because I don't have any weapons. I'm not, I don't have a bomb. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a weirdo. There's, there's nothing on me that should... I don't have a gun. I don't have a knife. I don't have weapons. I have nothing to be afraid of. Except for my titanium knee, which sets the alarm off every single time. So I'm not afraid of the inspection, but I can't undo what's inside of me. You know what's interesting? When I was going through the inspection, the guy right next to me sets the alarm off and he has a clip with ammunition in it. And the TSA agent says, you can't bring that ammunition on, on the plane. You're going to have to put it in your, you know, your, you, can have, you can check it through, um, you can mail it back to yourself, uh, but you can't keep this ammo and go on the plane. And the guy said, can I keep the clip and you take the ammo? <laughs> no, we laugh, but, but you get it. In other words, okay, when I'm no longer a threat, can I go on board? I'll be honest with you, twice. I've gone through the inspection line unafraid. And I set off the alarm, and you know what's in my backpack? My pocket knife. And you know what they say? We're going to have to confiscate that. And I say, no, you're not. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm going to put it in my carry-on, or I'm going to mail it to myself. The twice when I've forgotten, forgotten, forgotten to take my knife out of my backpack, I just simply show my police credentials, go to the Denver Police Department. You know, there's a DPD office there, and I just say, guys, will you just watch my knife until I get back? <laughs> not everybody can do that. Charles Spurgeon was asked by someone if he could write his life story. And he said, you can write my life in the sky. I don't have anything to hide. Do you have something to hide? Do you dread careful inspection by God's Holy Spirit? Walking in the light means that we allow the light to reveal in us our spiritual condition, our faults and our failures, not to embarrass us, not to humiliate us, but rather so that we can say, I don't want this to be a part of my life anymore. I so want to be different. I want to change. I want to make amends. 
So the light changes our character. It changes our conduct. Look what it says. For the fruit of the spirit. One translation in one manuscript says for the fruit of, the, of, of light. So whether it's for the fruit of, of the spirit or the fruit of light. We, we, we know that, that if it's light. Light doesn't really produce fruit. So is Paul mixing his metaphors we don't know other than if the text actually reads for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We understand that the light changes our character. It changes our character because we now get to participate of goodness and righteousness and truth. The light bears all good things. The idea being the fruit of the spirit. In what sense? The fruit of the spirit is the character of Christ. In what sense? With the presence of the Holy Spirit, the character of Christ is also the character of the Holy Spirit, and it becomes our character in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Here's the idea. The light of Jesus in us bears the fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. We are God's light, and we present Jesus to this dark world. And that's why you upset so many people. You don't even have to say anything. You don't even have to, all you have to do is just show up and people will go, what are you doing here? It was said that Billy Graham, who just experienced his 99th birthday, he went golfing with this very, very famous, famous golfer. And the golfer started swearing and he was upset. He goes, what are you so upset about? He goes, that Billy Graham. Why has he upset you so much? He goes, I don't know. Just his presence made him feel uncomfortable. Just the presence of Billy Graham. Because in his mind, he must have been thinking, maybe he heard him preach or teach. He, 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 Billy Graham just didn't even say anything. Just his presence was enough to remind him that there's a God and there's a gospel and there's a person who invites people to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior and, and fall in love with Jesus. In brief, goodness means to be full of virtue, excellence, kindness, helpfulness. For the fruit of the Spirit is in, is in all goodness. It means full of goodness, and therefore we do what is good. We might think of this as a, as a quality person or a, a person with a good heart. This quality person with a good heart treats people with respect and treats them with dignity. The good person is gracious. But again, the good person doesn't give license for evil or allow evil. The good person is the person who steps forward when evil is being done. This is the person who says, you know, that's not right. We shouldn't do that or we shouldn't say that. Or This is the person who, 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 who literally sees something that's gone horribly and terribly wrong and won't cooperate it. Goodness is love in action. It means something, it, it's the Greek word agathosune. It, it means something more like generosity or moral accident, excellence. It's like agape love. Goodness finds expression when it sacrificially and willfully gives. In other words, the good person goes, no, I I want to do this. Well, you went out of your way. I know, but I want to do it. But you don't, it, it, it's, such, it's such a hardship. No, it, it really isn't. I, I want to do this. Righteousness incorporates at least two ideas. When here, when it talks about in all goodness and righteousness, righteousness, to put it plainly, to put it simply, it, it means to be right and then to do right. It means to be right with God 
And because you're right with God, you're willing to do what's right. Now, I want you to pause for just a moment because is it possible for people who aren't right with God to do good things? Yeah, that is possible. Is it possible for an unbeliever, even a person in darkness, to give a cold cup of water or to dig a well or to build an orphanage or a hospital? Are they capable of doing good things? Yes. Are these good things then acceptable to God? No. Because you can't do good things that all of a sudden go, Hey, if, if I build enough hospitals, if I, if I feed enough children, if I dig enough wells, if I make this world a better place, will that make my sin go away? The answer is no. It would be like if you got pulled over by a police officer and, and the police officer said, do you know why I pulled you over? And you said, because you suspect I'm an illegal alien. No, never say that to the officer. Don't say that. That's not, you just say, no, no, why did you pull me over? And he says, because you ran the stoplight. Can you imagine if you said, but I stopped at a hundred stoplights before this one. Don't I get some sort of credit for all the times that I did stop? What's the officer going to do? He's going to write you a ticket, huh? Not for all the times you stopped, but for the one time that you ran the light. That's the way sin is. That's the way sin works. It disqualifies us. And so here, righteousness, again, it means to be right with God and to do what's right. But there's a danger. Here's the danger. The danger is some people think, I'm saved. I, I'm, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Um, I, I prayed a prayer and I went to church. and that, that, So I, I, I've done everything that I really need to do. Yeah, you've done everything you need to do to be saved. But remember, you're saved to serve. In other words, being saved isn't a good enough reason not to serve. Not to do things that are helpful. The other false expression is you do so many things that you develop an idea of becoming self-righteousness. Well, I've done all these wonderful things. I've done all these wonderful things. Doesn't that count for something? Certainly it does. But God wants that balance of the person going, I have a right relationship and a right heart with God, and now I'm going to do what's right. And so there are people who focus so much on doing the right thing that they forget what it means to be the right person. So righteousness incorporates the idea of integrity, the idea being how we deal with God and how we deal with each other. In Romans chapter 4, verse 5, it says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for him for righteousness. In other words, belief isn't a work, according to Paul in the book of Romans, just by simply going, well, just by acknowledging and believing that what God says about Christ, isn't that a work? No, it is not. It's not a work. Anyone who's ever worked for a paycheck and said, okay, here's your paycheck, you get what you work for. But if a person gives you a check and you've done no work, you're able to understand that that's a gift. Everyone understands the difference between something they've worked for and something that's been given to them freely. And so the, the last thing that he talks about is truth, aletheia. Here, truth, aletheia, or aletheia, this is truth. But again, here's what I would say. It's moral truth, and it's saving truth. It's working truth and living truth. It's the knowledge and the experience of true reality in contrast to that which is not real. So he's talking about truth in its absolute 
existence. And see, for the person who doesn't believe in absolute truth or that there is such a thing as truth, it makes perfect sense that they don't have the Spirit of God. The Bible acknowledges that there is such a thing as truth. And so the old life was marked by lies and hypocrisy and deception. And so the new life is marked by truth and sincerity. Truth is the fruit that gives evidence to the life of God in the heart of the believer. That's why truth becomes so important. Christians can and do fall into sin in all of these areas. But I want to pause for just a moment. When a person experiences a total lack of goodness, there's a complete absence of righteousness. There's a persistent commitment to deceit. That gives strong evidence. That gives overwhelming evidence that the person isn't in the light. So if a person refuses goodness, righteousness, truth, that's a terrible sign. All Christians are called on and expected to produce fruit. So Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, you're the light of the world. So which is it? Is he the light of the world or are you? What's the right answer? Both are true, huh? They have to be. If Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, it's got to be true. If Jesus says, you're the light of the world, that also has to be true. And so what he's basically saying is, the moment that I'm in you and you're in me, you are to shine. You are to glow. And so think about it. This is light that changes our character. This is light that changes our conduct. And look at verse 10. This is light that changes our choice. Look what it says, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Let's pause again. Jesus has changed us on the inside. There's a character change. Jesus is changing our conduct. Jesus is changing our choices in what way? The Christian is in the light. And because the Christian is in the light, the Christian wants to find out, Lord, what's acceptable to you? What do you see as as acceptable or unacceptable. Here, finding out is a word in the original language that implies the idea of proving, testing. Um, Scientists will come up with a hypothesis and they will test their hypothesis. And so here, light offers protection. Romans 13, 12, the armor of light. And separation, what communion has light with darkness, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Light is supposed to be able to help us discern the difference between darkness. This shouldn't be that hard, should it? Everyone who closes their eyes, there might be a kind of a darkness that you see, but... Because of the presence of light, it's filtering in inside of you. By the way, when you close your eyes, can you tell if you're in a lit room or a dark room? Even with your eyes closed? I'll bet you most of you can. It's easy. Experiment when you get home. Close your eyes in a lit room and close your eyes in a dark room. Are you able to tell the difference? Paul is inviting us To be able to tell the difference. The child of God, the person in the light, wants to know what his or her heavenly father wants in any given situation. So when we seek to find God's will and when we want to know God's will, it's going to provide evidence that we are in the light. That our hearts have changed. How? Because our choices have changed and he is going to reaffirm that 
later in the text when he says in verse 17, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The only way that you're going to be able to understand what the will of the Lord is, is to open up your Bible and ask your Bible to tell you what is the mind of God in the matter that I'm trying to find out about. So in short, the believer wants to be able to discriminate between what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. We make new choices. We make God-honoring choices. We begin to ask, Lord, what is the path that I should follow? And what is the path that I should ignore? What's the, the, the direction that's going to be pleasing or displeasing to you? Paul talked about this when he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Prove all things. That means test to make sure it's right. He said prove all things. And then he said hold fast to what is good. In order for you to hold fast to what is good, you're going to have to let go of what's bad. The Apostle John is going to provide instruction on this very same subject when he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try, the word is test, try the spirits, test the spirits to see whether or not they're of, they're of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there are people who will say to you, God is speaking to me, and this is what God is saying. And you need to be able to go, wait a minute. But that's different from what the Bible says. That's different from what Jesus says. And that's what it means by testing the spirits. Is it consistent with the word of God? And is it consistent with the spirit of God? And then the light convicts and converts. Look what it says in 11 through 13. And it says in verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Again, pause. In verses 9 and 10, Paul writes about the characteristics of the Christian. We are light. We are in the light. Because we are light and we are in the light, Paul now gives a command to the Christian. Don't participate in the works of darkness. This is Paul's way of saying, you don't have permission to be involved with evil. We can't compromise God's standards. One of the reasons why, it isn't just simply because it's wrong. It's because it weakens our witness. Well, how come you get to do it and I don't get to do it? It was said that Spurgeon smoked cigars. And someone asked, my friend Spurgeon, don't you think that this is wrong? He goes, he goes smoking to excess is wrong. And, and, the guy, and Spur, he asked Spurgeon, what do you think excess is? He goes, wouldn't you have two cigars in your mouth at the same time? And then one day, he saw his picture plastered on a billboard. And it said, such and such, the cigar that Spurgeon smokes. The day that he saw that billboard is the day that he quit smoking and he never smoked ever again. Because he didn't want his liberty to be used as an opportunity for somebody else to be stumbled or to sin. And that's where you draw the line. Your liberty becomes license the moment that you use your liberty as an opportunity to sin. So when it leaves you stumbling or groping or grasping, that's when you probably know that it is unfruitful. Look what it says in verse 11. And have no fellowship, koinonia. That means you don't mix with the unfruitful works of darkness. How do you know it's unfruitful? I'm going to give you a very simple definition. Something is unfruitful if it has no lasting value. How do we know that it's dark? 
Again, if you stumble, if you grope, if you grasp, if you don't see clearly, Paul has already mentioned some of the unfruitful works of darkness in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember in verses 3 through 6, if you remember what we've already studied, in verse 3 it says, but fornication and uncleanness, covetousness shouldn't even be named among you. Filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting, which isn't fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. So he's already given us a, a, a little long laundry list of those things that probably aren't helpful. Paul has an even uglier list in Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 where he talks about the works of the flesh. These are the things that lead to death. And we should also carefully consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5.11 where he says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous, that means greedy, or an idolater or a reviler, that's an ancient word which means party person. This is the part, a reviler is a person who goes, hey, let's go get drunk. Oh, hey, let's go get high. Oh, hey, let's just go have fun. And you need to be able to say, you know what? Been there, done that. Many a night I've spent hugging that toilet bowl, throwing up into it, going, don't I just have the best life ever? That's not the best life ever. It's the worst life ever. And so, to ignore evil is to encourage evil. When we keep quiet about evil, we're actually promoting evil. When we blur the line between good and evil, we promote evil. Paul says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Look what he says, rather expose them. There's a voice that's whispered in your head on more than one occasion. You see it and you say to yourself, that's wrong. That's not right. That's wrong. You need to be able to say that. This isn't right. Christians are either combating or containing evil or being influenced by evil. Read the unfruitful works of darkness. When I'm using the term evil, I'm using it in the sense of what Paul is saying, have no fellowship, quote, with the unfruitful works of darkness. And look what it says in verse 12. For it is shameful even to think of those things which are done by them in secret. Do you know what Paul is saying? This is a hard verse for me to teach. Some things are so disgusting. Some things are so filthy that they shouldn't be a matter of public discourse. They should be dealt with giving as little detail as possible. Why? Because they're shameful. Because they're morally and spiritually dangerous. Let me give you an illustration. Some types of diseases are so horrible that they should only be handled by trained specialists. I have a lot of friends who, who work in health and medicine and in first response. But if you come across Ebola, what do you suppose you should do? Should you go, hey, you know what? Ebola is that flesh-eating disease that if you mishandle it, you can, even trained specialists can contract this disease and then be consumed by it. There was a doctor with Samaritan's Purse who was called in response to an Ebola epidemic and after taking all of the precautions he could possibly t take, he was still infected. Some nuclear materials, some toxic materials have to be disposed of by trained personnel. In the same way, some things, some sins are so dangerous and disgraceful that we have to be very, very careful with them. You know what I think of? I think of people who have said to me, well, I watch pornography in order to combat pornography. Do you understand how stupid that statement is? 
Can you imagine? Can you imagine saying, I am going to watch this so that I can understand it and better combat it. Hey, guess what? There's some things that are so disgusting and so perverse that they have to be dealt with very carefully and very biblically. And even after having said all of that, I want to make sure you understand something. That even if you've participated in that which is so shameful that you can't even talk about it, I want you to know that there's a God who loves you. There's grace and mercy available to you and forgiveness that's available even for this. In verse 13, Paul writes, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. And so one of the properties of light is exposure. When you turn on the light, the darkness flees. Darkness can't cooperate and stand in the presence of light. The best way to combat sin is to expose it. The best way to combat sin is to turn on the light of truth. Remember, everything in us apart from Christ wants to hide sin, ignore sin, cover it up. God's truth makes that less likely. And so that's why you open up your Bible and that's why hopefully you go to church and you participate. You know what? When I go to church and when I read my Bible, I get all convicted and stuff. I know, isn't it great? This means it's working. This, this means it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's washing and cleansing. The challenge, the light challenges us to wake up. Look what it says in verse 14. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. In verse 14, when he says, therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead. Who is Paul quoting? Where is that phrase found in the Bible? I looked in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I made my way through the whole Bible and I couldn't find it anywhere. The exact words aren't found anywhere in the Old Testament. So where in the world is Paul getting this? Some have suggested Isaiah 26, 19. Let me read it to you. Quote, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing you who dwell in the dust. For you do is like the dew of herbs and the earth shall be cast out the dead. Isaiah 26, 19 is a reference to the resurrection. In Isaiah 60, verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. I'm going to suggest to you that Paul might be taking those two verses and paraphrasing them in order to make a point. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead. Christ will give you light. Because Isaiah's 26, 19, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. I think he's using this metaphor, this figure of coming back to life when he says, awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead. Remember, you used to be dead in trespasses and sins. You used to be in the dark. But he's saying now it's time to wake up. From Isaiah and these passages it could also be a song. You know, in the early church, just like in our church, we take these bits and pieces of scripture and we put them together and we sing songs. In the, in the, in the early Jesus movement, we used to sing a song. We're the children of the light and we're the children of the day. We need not ever stumble in an ever darkened way. Though the darkness may be thick around us and sin is everywhere, the light of the Lord is in our hearts that, and, and it will be there. 
This could be a song. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead. Christ will give you light. It's, it's as if Paul is saying that people are like Rip Van Winkle. Do you remember the story of Rip, Rip Van Winkle? Remember, this is the story of a guy who falls asleep and he wakes up some hundred years later and the whole world is different. We fall asleep and we wake up in a whole new world. Some of you guys fell asleep in the 1960s. Okay, 70s. Okay, maybe some of you 80s. All right, even some of you in the 90s. You fell asleep. And then you woke up. And all of a sudden it's now. I'm going to suggest to you that part of what Paul seems to be saying is, wake up. Don't sleep past the time of God's grace. Wake up. Wake up. Remember what he's already told us. You've been changed. Jesus has changed you. So act like you're changed. Wake up while you can. And by the way, arise from the dead is a summons. Arise from the dead. It's a summons to repentance. It's a way of saying, there's an opportunity to turn from sin and to embrace the Savior. Jesus is the true light. According to John chapter 1, verse 9, remember John the Baptist, or John the Apostle says, he's the true light that was in the world. Jesus is the true light that lights every single way. You struggle in the dark. You struggle in your, your thinking. You struggle in your living. You can appreciate you can't appreciate the miracle of the sunrise unless you've waited in the darkness. When I was in Tucson, three o'clock became four o'clock, and four o'clock became five o'clock, and five o'clock came became six o'clock, and finally the sun came up. And the darkness was gone. And I could see clearly once again. Sometimes you may find yourself in a dark place. On accident. Or on purpose. But the Bible gives you permission. To remember. Jesus has made me light. He's transferred me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his own dear son. The famous journalist and writer Malcolm Muggridge was once asked this question, quote, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? He replied, I should like my light to shine, even if only very fitfully, like a match struck in a dark, cavernous night and then flickering out. It's his British way of saying, hey, look, I, wanna, I want my light to shine. Even if it's like a match that just suddenly shines brightly. Even if it's only for a moment. Even if people only see it for a brief second. So let me ask you a question. What would you like to do with the rest of your life? Would you like to walk in love like it says in verses 1 through 6? Would you like to walk in the light like it says in verses 8 through 14? So walking in love and walking in light makes it possible that we can walk carefully in verses 15 through 17. And then in harmony with the people that God places in our lives in verses 8 18 all the way to chapter 6 verse 9. What do you want? to do with the rest of your life. 
Because if, like Malcolm Muggridge, you decide, I want to shine, even if it's just for a moment, I want to shine, even if it's just long enough for one person to say, oh, that's what it's like to live in the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want so much to reflect your character. Lord, according to Paul, we used to be darkness. It's no longer true. We are light. Lord, I pray that each person within the sound of my voice would really believe that. Not just wonder if it might be true or consider the implications if it could be true. But just for a moment, they would believe with all of their heart, God's changed me. Christ's changed me. Jesus has come into my heart. Jesus has changed me from the inside out. Jesus wants me to be different. Jesus has given me the Holy Spirit so I can be different. And so, Lord, help us to be a light, your light in this very dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.